If you have a Bible, would you take it, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, if you're not sure where Isaiah is, just find the book of Psalms right in the middle of your Bible and go right, and you'll eventually find the large book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49. And if you've been walking through Isaiah with us, which we've been walking through Isaiah for a while now, um, but recently you'll remember that in chapters 42 through 48, they've had as their backdrop Judah's future deliverance from Babylonian captivity, which the Lord was going to accomplish through some surprising means, through the means of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was going to defeat Babylon and then send Judah back to their homeland. God's people, having been taken far from their land, would then be restored to Israel and to the city of Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. However, after chapter 48 describes that deliverance, it ended, if you remember last week with those words, there is no peace for the wicked. Those words serve to remind us that political restoration was not all that Israel needed. A redemption out of physical bondage would mean nothing if they were still bound to false idols and self-centered salvation projects. They would still be in the darkness of sin and rebellion. They would still be in need of comfort, the comfort that God announced back in chapter 40. Therefore, the, the question as we enter into chapter 49 is how will God accomplish this deeper and more essential deliverance? That's a question similar to one that flows through the whole book, namely how is sinful Jerusalem going to become the holy city of God that's described at the end of the book? And along with all of these questions and related to this idea of true salvation, we're prompted to wonder that if Cyrus would only be used to provide political restoration, then who is God going to send to bring true salvation for his people? Isaiah 49, 1 through 13 gives us the answer. And the answer to those questions is that the Lord's servant is going to be sent to accomplish salvation. The servant, capital S, is going to come and bring not only Judah, but the whole world out of darkness and cause all people to return to the Lord. The servant is not a political savior. Rather, in the words of Alec Motyer, he is bringing, quote, a release from bondage into the freedom of the truth and pilgrimage, not of the feet, but of mind and heart into the newness the servant has brought about. This is how the ancient story of Israel intersects with our own because they are not the only ones that need release from bondage and need a pilgrimage into the newness that the servant offers. The whole world needs that kind of redemption. And the hope for our world is not a political leader or a human king. The hope is not found in money or businesses. It's not found in education or intellect because the problem in our world is much deeper than all of these things. The problem is a darkness of soul. It's a captivity of our very hearts. The problem in the world is spiritual and it's in us. It's in every single one of us. As has been said by many people, we think often that the problem in the world is outside of us. And therefore, the solution is in each of us. But in fact, the opposite is true. The problem in the world is in each of us. And so we need a solution that's going to come from outside of us. 
We need a worldwide savior who can bring light into our spiritual darkness and comfort into our broken and exiled souls. And into that deep need, Isaiah 49 offers us eternal hope. God's word says this to us today. It says, sing for joy. Sing for joy because the servant has been sent to bring to all people light and comfort. Sing for joy because the servant has been sent to bring to all people light and comfort. There is a darkness in our world and in our hearts, a darkness that we cannot bring light into on our own. And there is pain and struggle that we face in this world and in our very souls that we cannot heal by ourselves. But the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, to be the light in our darkness and the one who comforts us in all of our pain. And we know that the servant who is promised here is Jesus, the Messiah, who has come and who offers us light and comfort and salvation. And so my heart today is to lead us to sing for joy because the servant has come. To lead us to sing for joy because of who the servant is and what he has done. Because joy is transformative. What we delight in shapes how we walk through this world. We, we sing over what we love and what we love drives us. So if we're singing about the servant and finding joy in who he is and, and what he has done, then we are going to be coming more and more like him. So this is the invitation, the invitation of this servant song. It's an invitation into transformative joy, an invitation to sing for joy because the servant has been sent to bring to all people light and comfort. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13 is the second of, of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, the first being found back in chapter 42, and the last and most famous in chapters 52 and 53. In the first 39 chapters of this book, the Messiah is shown to be the Davidic king, but in, in these songs and in these chapters surrounding them, the Messiah is introduced as the suffering servant. And through this surprising picture and these songs, we're helped to understand how God is going to save all nations and even more so who God will send to save the nations. As we get ready to read this, note that the, the pattern of the servant songs is of a song followed by commentary on and confirmation of what was said in that song. And here we find the same thing. The, the song is found in verses one through six. And then the confirmation of what's in the song is found in verses 7 through 13. And it leads us into this, this call to sing for joy. And so with these things in mind, let's look at God's word, Isaiah 49. And I want to read for us verses 1 through 13. This is what God's word says to us this afternoon. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. My springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. We're going to think about this chapter in two parts. First, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see a description of the servant's identity and work, followed in verses 7 through 13 by a confirmation from the Lord of the servant's identity and work. So first, this is a a description of the servant's identity and work in verses 1 through 6. Even before we get into the, the description, however, we find in the first part of verse 1 that the message about the servant is given to all people. We find that the servant's message is to the world. The word coastlands there, it brings to mind the furthest islands as well as the coasts of all nations and everything in between. People near and far are to listen and give their undivided attention to these words that the servant himself is speaking. This worldwide message is important to note, especially as we transition from chapter 48 that was focused specifically on Israel. As with the the previous servant song in chapter 42, we find that God's light and God's comfort goes to all people. We see here what Simeon saw in Luke 2, that the servant was God's salvation, and God's salvation is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to God's people Israel. No one is excluded. Everyone who longs to sing with eternal joy can and must listen to the servant. In the remainder of verse 1, though, uh, through the end of verse 3, the, the servant is described, and we see that he is called, he is shaped, and he is named. If in chapter 42 he looked like a, he bore resemblance to a king, here in chapter 49 the servant looks like a prophet. First, he, he is called. He is called from the womb. He is called before he was born, and he was named The servant is set apart. He's commissioned. He's sent by the Lord for a specific purpose. The naming here, says David Jackman, probably has to do with his task, just like the names in the past uh, are are often associated with the the job or the task that they were called to. Names like Smith or Weaver or Taylor or Baker. The the name is tied to his, his role in the world. 
The, the words of verse 1 bring the call of Jeremiah to mind. Jeremiah 1.5 says in words similar to verse 1, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This prophet-like ministry of the servant is seen further in verse 2 as the servant describes how he is shaped by the Lord. He is called and now he is shaped by the Lord. And it recalls the, the prophets because the emphasis is on the ministry of the word. From the beginning, remember, we're called to listen to the servant and hear what's in his mouth. It's a sharp sword. Revelation 1 echoes that image of Jesus, the triumphant king, coming with a sword in his mouth. And the sword, as in Hebrews 4.12, is the word of God. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The ministry of the word, of, of the truth of who God is and who we are and what the servant must do to bring us salvation is a ministry of the word that cuts straight to our core. The servant's words are also said to be like a, a sharpened and a polished arrow. The, the, the sword and this arrow are crafted to cut and to pierce to the hearts of all people, revealing sin and bringing salvation. But pause and remember, what's the servant supposed to do? He's bringing salvation to the world. And we start to wonder if words, if, if a message spoken, is that really sharp enough? Is that piercing enough to truly change people? Don't we need something a little bit more than, than words in this word, world? Well, we should be careful that we don't fall into the same wrong thinking that the commander of the Assyrian army had back in chapter 36. You remember him? He asked the leaders of Judah, do you think that mere words are power and strategy for war? Are words enough to change us? Well, depends on what words they are. <laughs> if they are the, the soul-piercing words of the word of God, the, the soul-piercing words of the, the word made flesh, then the answer is yes. Yes, they can change us. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the word of God is the thing that can change the whole world. The servant is called, he is, he is shaped as this sword and as this arrow, and then he is named. And it's in his naming that we see this is not a prophet like all the other prophets. His name, we're told in, in verse 3, is Israel. But we know that the servant isn't the nation of Israel because verse 6 tells us that he's going to bring Israel back. Rather, the servant, as we saw in 42 as well, the servant is the greater Israel. He is everything that Israel could not be that they were supposed to be. Israel, the nation, couldn't save themselves. In fact, we saw just back in chapter 48, verses 1, verses one and 2, that Israel, the nation, called themselves by the name of the Lord, but not in truth. But this Israel, the servant, called, shaped, and named by God himself, he's going to come as the one who will keep this covenant perfectly and could therefore save God's people and save the world. And verse 3, it says that the servant would glorify the Lord. Remember last week we saw that Israel so often defamed and slandered the name of the Lord. But the servant is going to glorify the Lord perfectly. 
Jesus reveals this same desire to glorify his Father in John 17, 1 through 5. He prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He goes on, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's called and he's shaped and he's named. And yet into the midst of this description of the servant, we find this strange objection on the lips of the servant in verse 4. Look what the servant says in verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. As we continue to see this picture of the servant unfold, we find that the servant is discouraged. The servant is discouraged. He's disheartened and despondent. He He considers all the work that he's done to bring about salvation. And he says, it's all in vain. You don't have to search long to see that in Jesus's life and ministry. He was rejected by those he came to save. He longed to gather them, you remember, and comfort them, but they resisted him. And as we just saw in John 17, he was glorified. He was lifted up, but how? On a cross to be crucified by the people that he came to save. In this discouragement, Jesus finds himself in line with all of the prophets before him. Verse four is the cry of every prophet at some point. Indeed, it's the cry of every child of God in moments when we just become weary in well-doing. We know how it feels. We know how it feels to look at all of our efforts to live for the glory of God and feel like they're a waste of time. We know what it's like to try to stay faithful only to watch others cheat and then get ahead of us. We know what it's like to work hard to walk with the Lord, only to have everything come crashing down around us and to get discouraged. What's the solution for that kind of discouragement? The answer comes in the second part of verse four. As the servant moves from discouragement to trust, in the midst of feeling that his work is in vain, the servant is not just discouraged, but the servant is faithful. He is faithful and he is faith-filled knowing that the Lord is going to make things right and he's going to accomplish his, his purposes. The sermon is trusting, trusting that God moves in a mysterious way, but that he is sovereign and he is in control. The New Living Translation renders those last two phrases with these words. It says, yet I leave it all in the Lord's hands. I will trust God for my reward. In his faithfulness, the servant calls us also to have a a faithful trust as well, to to trust God's goodness and sovereignty and wisdom when we find ourselves in the darkness and in the pain of life. Brothers and sisters, no matter what is happening around us, we can trust our Heavenly Father. We can trust that he knows what he's doing. If Jesus can trust him... (laughs) in the midst of all the rejection that he felt, then we can trust him in all of our darkness and all of our pain. 
And we're going to need to. Because if Jesus was rejected, if Jesus grew discouraged and despondent, then it should be no surprise when we as his followers face the same things. Jesus has called us to be servants like him, and he has told us that like him, we're going to be rejected. In John 15, 20, our master, Jesus, who is the servant, says to us, his servants, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Servants are naturally despised and abhorred in this world. Think about occupations where people serve others. So often they are despised. And if we walk the path of Jesus, if we walk the path of sacrificial love, the path that rejects overt power and embraces humble service, the path that chooses suffering and death over comfort and ease, the path that puts the needs of others above our own, the path that washes the feet of friend and enemy of like, if we alike, if we if we walk that path, then we too will be spit upon and looked down on. And no doubt we will get discouraged. But the solution is not to, to throw off servitude, to say, I'm not going to be a servant anymore. It's not to say, no one gives me any respect. No one listens to me. No one appreciates all of my efforts. So I'm just going to start looking out for myself. Forget all this love for God, sacrificial love for my neighbor. What have they ever done for me? I'm tempted towards that attitude sometimes. And in fact, I'm probably encouraged to respond that way by the world at times. But the servant calls us to be faithful even when we're discouraged. In 1 Peter 2, as he describes the servant's suffering unjustly, Peter calls us to follow in the steps of Jesus, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued what? Entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. He continued to trust the Lord in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of difficulty. We entrust ourselves to Jesus in the face of difficulty, and we listen to the Lord. The Lord responds to the servant in verses 5 and 6, and we can assume that the servant listened. The servant is called, he is shaped, he is named, he is discouraged, but he's faithful, and the servant listens. The servant listens to the Lord. In these verses, the Lord reminds the servant of his identity and of his work. Rather than, than be discouraged by the rejection of those he was seeking to serve, he listened to the truth of the Father, telling him who he is and the greatness of what he was going to accomplish through his obedience. And so too, when we are discouraged, the call is to be faithful and to listen. To listen not to the voices around us, not to the voices inside us, but to the voice of the Lord. Again, Matyar writes this, despondency arises through listening to ourselves and our self-assessment instead of looking to God, recalling his purposes, living according to our dignity in him and rediscovering in him our source of power. When we are discouraged, we must listen to the gospel we must listen to the Lord. We must preach to ourselves the truth that all that Christ is, we are because of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and because of our faith in him. We too are called. 
The Lord in his grace has opened our ears to, to hear his call of love, to hear the call to repent and believe, the call to leave who we were before we met him, and to walk now with new names, to walk as disciples, to walk as followers of Jesus. We too are being shaped, shaped into the image of Christ, resisting the pressure of being pressed into the mold of the world and choosing to let the Spirit fashion us into the image of Christ, even to fashion us into swords, into arrows, messengers who speak the soul-piercing truth of the gospel in this world. We too are named. We are adopted as members of God's family, and he writes his name on us. We are called Christians. We are disciples. We are witnesses. We are more, and we're given a new identity. We're empowered by the Spirit to live into that new identity. So we're called, and we're shaped, and we're named, and we're, we're going to get discouraged but through the Spirit's work in us, we too can remain faithful to our new identity. We can listen to the voice of the Lord calling us to walk the hard but the joy-filled path that the Father has laid out for us in this world. Listen. Listen to who Jesus is. He's the Savior of the world who has rescued his people throughout the world through his finished work on the cross. And listen to who he has made us if we have repented and believed. In the darkness and in the pain of life, let the fact that you are called, you are shaped, you're named by the Lord, let that bring you out of discouragement as you trust in him and as you listen to his truth. Well, from this description of the servant's identity and work, we, we move into verses 7 through 13 and we find a confirmation from the Lord of the servant's identity and work. A confirmation from the Lord of the servant's identity and work. There are two, thus says the Lord statements, uh, one in verse seven and one in verse eight. And in both of these, we the, the Lord is speaking to the servant and confirming the prophecy of verses one through six. In the first one, in verse seven, he affirms that he's going to gather the nations of the world to himself in worship. And in the second, in verses eight through 12, he affirms that he's going to fulfill his covenant promises to Israel. So the nations in verse seven, Israel in verses eight through 12. And in both, he's affirming that he's going to accomplish all of this through who the servant is and what he will do. And all of this leads to the joy of verse 13. So in verse seven, the, the Lord confirms this worldwide reach of the servant's work. The, the servant felt his work was in vain, you remember, in verse 4, because he was cast off by those who had come to save. And yet we see that rejection is going to turn to respect, and abhorrence is going to turn to adoration. When a king walks by, there are usually two appropriate responses. You can stand, or you can bow down. And verse 7 tells us that when the servant comes, Kings will arise in admiration of him, and princes will bow down in submission to him. Those who had sought glory for themselves will now give glory to God. And those who had ruled over others, the servant, they, they now allow the servant to rule over them. One day, every knee, from the most exalted to the most despised, every knee will bow before King Jesus. How is that going to happen? Verse 7 tells us, right at the end, because of the Lord who is faithful. 
the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Verse 7 says it's because of the work of the Lord, because of God's faithfulness. Salvation is God's work for God's glory. God alone can turn our rejection of Jesus, our, our rejection of the servant, into respect and acceptance. He, he alone can replace our sinful rejection of him with joy-filled submission to him. Verses 8 through 12 then confirm that this turning of hearts will happen for Israel as well as for the world. The Lord speaks to the servant in verse 8, and he declares that he has answered and helped him and would send him not simply to fulfill his covenant to his people, but as the covenant in itself. Did you see that in the sec those phrases there? I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Jesus, the servant, is the covenant. The servant, Jesus Christ, brings about salvation, but he also is our salvation. Jesus proclaims the gospel, but he is the gospel. We believe in the message of redemption that God has declared when we believe in Jesus, because Jesus is the word of redemption made flesh. So this is the power of the word. We talked about words. Can words actually save us? Yes, they can, and they can do it because it's not simply the truth of what Jesus speaks that isn't a sword, isn't an arrow. Jesus himself is a sword. Jesus himself is an arrow that pierces and changes our hearts. Do we believe in a message? Yes, because we believe in Jesus who is the message. He is the salvation. We must be careful that we don't think we're believing some set of beliefs. We are believing a set of beliefs, but at the foundation, what are we believing? We're believing in Jesus, that Jesus is our Savior. The description that follows in verses 9 through 12, we see that Jesus, the servant, is the greater exodus, releasing prisoners in verse 9 and bringing others out of darkness. Those who come to him will not hunger or thirst, we're told. Why? Because he's the bread of life. He's the manna that has come down from heaven, and he is the living water. He's the, the rock that we are all called to drink from. His spirit fills us and becomes a spring in us that never runs dry. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's this level highway that rises up and leads us to the Father. He is the gate, and he has torn open the veil of the temple through the tearing of his body so that we can come to him and find salvation. And even here, speaking of Israel's redemption and restoration, Isaiah is looking forward to the calling of all peoples. Verse 12 uh, may refer to the, the scattered people of Israel and the fact that the servant's going to bring them all back no matter how far they have wandered. But it could also hint at, at all the nations that are going to come to the Lord. At the end of that verse, you see that this phrase, and these from the land of Syene, and the location of the land of Syene is, is a mystery. But some people think that it actually may refer to China. That that would be the furthest reaches that the, the people of Israel could imagine. It, it may mean that, but even if it doesn't, the effect is to say that the furthest reaches of the earth, as far as you can imagine, God is going to call his people from the ends of the earth to come to him. And the prophecy of Micah 4.2 is true in Jesus, the servant. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And in light of this glorious 
worldwide salvation, verse 13 says to us, so now sing for joy. Sing for joy. Why? Because the servant has been sent to bring to all people light and comfort. This work of the servant is more than we could ever imagine and more than Israel even thought it could be. But we didn't soak in verse six enough. The Lord says that of the servant that it's, it's too light a thing. It's, it's too easy. It's, it's too simple. It's too small for him to simply save Israel. That's not enough. He's too great to just do that. Therefore, we're told that he's going to come as a light to the nations. He, he can't just bring salvation to the nation of Israel. He's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We know the darkness of this world. We know the darkness of natural disaster, the darkness of disease and death, of sin, of war, of hatred, of, of murder. And we know that the only light that can illumine all of the darkness in the world is Jesus. We know the pain of the world. We know it because we've felt it. We've all felt the pain of, of broken dreams, of frustration and failure, of death and estrangement, of separation, of hatred, of sickness, of weakness. And the servant comes I love how this, this section ends. Sing for joy, all the earth, heavens, and the earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For the Lord has comforted his people. What a word choice. He has comforted his people. And he will have compassion on his afflicted. That's not the servant that we expect. He is a conquering king and he will come and he will crush all of his enemies. But he's also, he's also a king who comes to offer comfort to all we who are hurting. He comes to offer compassion when we are afflicted. Jesus comes as, as a shepherd because we're just wandering sheep. And he comes to bring us into the fold and care for us. Do you feel trapped in darkness? Do you feel the need for comfort and compassion? Well, then sing for joy. Sing for joy because the servant has come and he has come to bring light and comfort to his people. And so I invite you this week, sing for joy. Sing for joy that the servant has come when you feel discouraged and you feel disheartened by life, sing for joy. Sing for joy that the servant has come when you feel all of the pain and the frustration just of everyday life. The servant has come and he will comfort you and bring compassion to you. Sing for joy that the servant has come when you, so that you can, so that you remember and that you remind others that the most important thing in the world is that Jesus has come to bring salvation. Everything else fades to the background at that moment. When we get discouraged, we say, you know what? I will entrust it to the Lord, the Lord that I've entrusted my very soul to because he's brought me salvation. Let's sing for joy with our mouths and with our lives so that the people who in this world, people in our families, the people in our workplaces, the people in our neighborhoods, so that they would see that, that Jesus is the light that they need in their darkness that they would see that Jesus is the comfort 
that they need and all of their pain, that Jesus offers a compassion that is sorely lacking in our world. And may we be people who are light. May we be people who offer comfort. May we be people of compassion so that our words ring true when we tell them about our Savior. Sing for joy, brothers and sisters. Sing for joy because Jesus has come to bring light and comfort to his people. And sing for joy because the servant has come and he's coming again. Let's take a moment of silence and reflect on God's word. And then I will pray for us. Father, would you fill our hearts with a song of joy? Would you help us to see who Jesus is? Would you help us to see who he has made us to be? And Lord, as we rejoice in him, as we love him, with that love and that joy, would you cause that to change us and to change our world? Lord, that we would know your comfort on a daily basis, that we would know your light in the midst of all of our darkness, that we would be arrows and swords that proclaim the wonderful truth that Jesus has come to bring light and comfort. Father, help us to sing this week, literally and figuratively that our lives would be a song of praise to you because the servant has come. Ask all this in Jesus, the servant's name. Amen.